Shabbat Shalom. My name is Noel, not Noah. I get, as I mentioned last week, a lot of people have been coming up to me recently and they've been referring to me as Noah or I get Joel sometimes. I don't usually uh, correct people if they call me Noah or Joel, but if someone uh, exposes themselves as dyslexic and they call me Leon, then I'm like, no, 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 no. My name is Noel. But anyways, my name is Noel Joshua Hadley. And um, this is the Unexpected Cosmology. Glad you guys could be here with me tonight. One of the greatest compliments that I tend to get, and I get these, this is another thing I've been getting a lot of recently. People will write me emails or I will see comments that people say about me in social media, or they will come onto this Discord group and introduce themselves, and they will say something like this. I don't agree with Noel on everything, but... So I take that as a compliment. It means I'm what, what I think they're saying in that is that I'm willing to look at topics that very few others are uh, a great deal of them as well. Obviously, the more variables I come comment upon, the more likely we are to find disagreements. I mean, it, anybody else out there, I, I, I could find somebody who uh, just. They just focus on one topic. Like, you guys know who those people are. They just, they, they will base a whole YouTube channel or the whole career or whatever on commenting on one topic. That's, that's their expertise. And we'll either agree with them or disagree. And even when we agree, we still find things to disagree on. Uh, but imagine if you're covering hundreds of things and things that people don't want to look at. There's going to be a lot of disagreements there. Uh, the air here at TUC, I think you will find, uh, captures the title of The Unexpected Cosmology. When I came up with this title a few years ago, I was working with, uh, with Polly Hart, actually. If anybody, if anyone, if you know him, he's a, uh, a fictional author here in the conspiracy realm. I was sitting in a old Hobbit-like house in Ireland and uh, passing different titles with him, trying to work on, you know, variations. I was also working with Bob Nodal at, at Globusters, getting his opinion and a few other people. And I love the idea of the X marks the spot in unexpected, right? It's unexpected, but there's an X marks the spot in it. And so you never know what you're going to discover here. Um, so tonight's going to be one of those nights where I'm going to be, you know, talking about things that, um, you know, are going to, there are some things when you talk about in the Bible that there is no, there's no room for kind of maneuvering or kind of moving around on. And the resurrection for a lot of people is one of them. For those of you paying attention to my various writings, I have described over the last couple of years, several different uh, explanations of the resurrection, all from ancient text. Uh, I don't think it was as clear cut to the ancients and the early Christians as we make out in modern doctrine, where you go to a denomination and they're like, okay, you got to fill in the box, you got to agree with this, 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 and this, and if you don't, uh, you're a heretic and you're out, right? That's That's a cult mentality. And it's funny, people will <laughs> refer to me as a cult leader, and it's like, like, are you guys projecting onto me right now? Because um, there, there's a lot of different ideas we push around here. And so, so I'll be talking about one of those tonight. You'll see what I mean. Before we do get started, I wanted to say congratulations to uh, to Treon on the new baby girl he announced. I think it was this early earlier this week. Lots of babies uh, 
sprouting up around here at Cosmology. We're keeping the Earth populated against their schemes. Also, this is exciting news. Um, I was hoping to have the final coffee in my lap yesterday, uh, but I am told by Adam Fink at Parable of the Vineyard that it will be in my hands tomorrow or early next week. Uh, the Books of the Nazarene. And this is the first book that he has ever personally edited uh, with his, uh, this is with his wife, Victoria. And this is going to be, um, it has been handed over to the Unexpected Cosmology to publish it and to manage it. And we will be exclusively premiering this book to the world. I am so excited about this. This is Adam Fink's own um, editing job of the Books of the Nazarene. And this will be sent out to all TUC members first. If you are part of a uh, the, the, the book club, the TUC membership, this will be sent out starting, uh, hopefully, y'all willing, January 1st to all members. And so we're really getting on this and getting this finished. And then uh, it will afterwards go on sale for everybody else. So if you are not a TUC member, I highly recommend uh, considering that, supporting the ministry, and you will get a new hardbound book uh, release every single uh, month. I was just speaking. She's here tonight. I was just speaking with Miss Pamela, and I don't even know if Pamela appreciates uh, the scope of what she's doing. And she is translating the entire book of Psalms from the Paleo-Hebrew into the English. To my understanding, this has never been done. I don't know if this has ever been done. And I so believe in her project. And this is like pure poetry, she writes. I and mean, it's so beautiful. I so believe in what she's doing. And uh, I, I, I want to fully support her psalm project. And so we're hoping... Uh, this is not an official announcement, but maybe it is. Uh, we're hoping that her first volume of the Psalm Project will be available in the next two or three months. I know I probably just put a lot of pressure on Pamela right now. Um, don't sweat it. You can do this. And uh, that will also be premiered with the TUC uh, Book Membership Club. And again, that will be one of the ways that you can help support her uh, by continuing this project and getting it done and getting the entire book of Psalms translated from Paleo-Hebrew into English. And of course, Rebecca, I'm not sure if she's here with us tonight, but uh, she's getting, she's working on right now, The Earth Not a Globe, Volume 2. That's another book that's never been um, copied over from the original newspapers. I mean, there's just a lot of things going down here, and I'm, I'm really excited for it all. I will bring up the conference really quickly with Zen Garcia, and that will be next May. Uh, I need to bring that up every week and plug that. Hope you guys are getting tickets. I'd love to see you there. And if you have looked recently at the TUC store, which we have um, on the main page of the website, I have new items stocked in the store. Uh, Polly Hart's two books from him, uh, Biblical Cosmology, as well as the Testament of Job, his translation of it. Uh, very good. I have uh, Zeet Seats, uh, Jewelry. Uh, an ephod, um, breastplates, uh, leather mezuzahs, uh, all those, most of those are on pre-order, very limited supply. Go get yourself one, help support the ministry. Uh, we have a huge stock explosion coming very, very soon. Um, new sellers are coming in and they're going to be practical Torah-based items. There's all sorts of really awesome stuff. And if anyone out there is listening and you personally make uh, tassels and other things like that, and 
you're looking for a outlet to sell them, come and speak to me. And we are setting it up and trying to make this a, uh, for those of you coming in, please be sure to turn off your microphone. Thank you. And uh, we're trying to make this a, uh, an outlet where many people can come in and sell their products and uh, make some money on that to support themselves. So I know these are trying times for a lot of people. With that, there's a lot to cover tonight. So let's dive right into it. Hopefully you saw the link I dropped into the Discord room. This is called Children of the Mud Flood. I'm on page one. As you can tell, it was the date. It was first written May 24th, 2020. So about two and a half years ago. And I came out. So when I learned about the mud flood back in 2019, it took me several months of really looking into it before I felt comfortable. And even when I started writing about it, I didn't really feel that comfortable with it. Like, I didn't really know what to do with all this. I wasn't even pushing the Millennial Kingdom at that time, but this was one of the first that I came out with, and I've greatly expanded it now and uh, updated this. Um, this is the first time I'm actually presenting, and I'm excited about that. Now, the first thing we're going to do is, uh, you see there on page three, Teenagers in American Invention, because of the lack of time tonight, I am not going to be reading from this, which is a bit of a shame. Uh, this is an updated report. This was actually the first post-college essay I ever wrote. Uh, when I was kind of, I hadn't woken up yet, but I started realizing how strange the world was and uh, how things were an illusion. And I started realizing that, wait a second, uh, before the 1950s, there is no mention of teenagers anywhere in our history. They didn't exist. I started looking for them and I couldn't find them. I'm like, wait, what? Uh, anyways, you can see that there. I'm just going to skip that because it doesn't really tie in too much to what we're talking about tonight. We're going to start on page eight. This is called... Revelation 20, they live again. And if you're a Star Trek fan, that's the, what is that? What's that episode? The, the Trouble with Tribbles, I think it is. Revelation chapter 20, verses 5 through 7. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of Elohim and of Mashiach and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Revelation 25 through 7. The best policy is sometimes to come right out and say what you and I are probably already thinking. It's why I dropped this week's Bible memory verse into your lap. I have to increase my, uh, like, I'm having a tough time reading this tonight. All right. Revelation chapter 20 has been an ongoing source of commentary for the entirety of my Millennial Kingdom investigation, seeing as how Satan's short season of deception is our probable whereabouts at present. Up until this very moment, however, I have yet to put any emphasis on the highlighted portion, the part where it says, the dead would live again after the thousand years were finished. You will tell me the context is already provided and is speaking of the judgment of the dead. Is it, though? Read it again. The first resurrection is referring to those who were promised to be priest of Elohim and of Mashiach and to reign with him a thousand years. Again, it is only after the thousand years that the dead lived again. Live for judgment purposes only, you will tell me. Wait, hold your horses. 
Who is Satan released from prison to just to deceive then if the dead are already being judged by this point? It can't be the resurrected. The second death has no power over them. That would be the, the resurrection at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. There were undoubtedly citizens of the kingdom who had rejected Yahu, Yahuwah's Torah, Mashiach, or both, a major contributor as to why Shalom on earth was interrupted. But they had already made their bed and were laying in it once Satan was released for the purposes of deception, meaning they had already deceived themselves. Who are these dead people then, living again, mind you, while Satan goes about rampaging to the four quarters of the earth? Have you checked out a world population chart as of late? I suggest you do. I have even taken the time to provide one for your consideration, and what do we observe? The official narrative has a population explosion rather recently in his story. Seriously, bro, it's off the charts. Apparently, hardly anybody was interested in making babies up until the Black Plague. For nearly 12,000 years, the citizens of Earth were too hard at work picking cotton to muster any energy in the marriage bed when the lights went off. And then did you read the note at the bottom of the chart? It says life expectancy before 1800 was less than 30 years. Well, that's suspicious. Let's not get distracted, though. Seeing as how the population trackers are obviously unconcerned with any number of population spurts in between the resets, nor are they capable of documenting them, and in all honesty are attempting to hide them. What concerns us is the intervening years following the Black Plague. And I, I, suge I suggest that the Black Plague did happen and that it was a major judgment event, uh, very Torah-based. I mean, you, you look at the wilderness, those plagues would sweep through and just take people out who were in rebellion. Um, and uh, I think it was probably towards the end or at the end or just after the end. I'm not really sure. And, of course, with the end of the Black Plague is when the, uh, the Renaissance starts, which is, you know, the age of enlightenment. We have before us a population explosion after the Black Plague, though it really takes off around 1700, soaring by 1800. Seriously, not even NASA rockets can manage such a trajectory. They're going to need a much longer spreadsheet at this rate. That or inoculating the world with the, the uh, well, I, <laughs> I won't say that, uh, but the, well, actually it rhymes, so I will. Inoculating the world with the prick will do the trick. Remember the Georgia Guidestones? Its demise took us all by surprise. My wife was in pre-labor when the news hit her mailbox. That the Georgia Guidestones was destroyed by a reported bomb blast or whatever. The date of its destruction was 7-6-2022, only one day after CERN fired up its engines. Our first daughter was born on the following morning. What a glorious way to enter the world, if I do say so myself. Also, the numbers are all over this one. Uh, the first thing to note is the moment in which the blast hit. 4 40333, as if the precision of those numbers aren't suspicious. The Guidestones have stood for 42 years. Explosion, Freemason, and Jesuit all equal 42. As mentioned, the bombing ritual happened on 7-6-2002. Emphasis on the 7-6 like 76. I bet you guys didn't know I was going to go into a ceremony by the numbers. Well, I am. Um, the same date is George W. Bush's 76th birthday. You will 
Likely recall that Bush is a certified Skull and Bones member, which is 76 again. It's the secret. Okay, I hear me a lot of background noise. If somebody can. Um... Okay, I'm gonna... there we go. That's. I'm just going to go down like a flamboyant French king and start muting people. All right. You will likely recall that Bush is a certified Skull and Bones member, 76 again. It's the secret society that identifies with the number 322. And when did you know it? The Georgia Guidestone etchings were unveiled on March 22nd, 1980, or 322. The builders, as well as, as its demolition crew, have all left their calling card, it seems. Here are a few more numbers for your consideration. The day of the Guidestone destruction coincided with the 201st day of Pope Francis's birthday. Man, this guy shows up often in the numbers game. Speaking of which, the Jesuit Order, Order of Illuminati, and Skull and Bones all equal 201. And lest we forget, event 201 is what led us into this pandemic mess to begin with. We have already seen how Skull and Bones equals 76. Well, so does Bomb. It only gets better, though. The name of the person who supposedly wrote the Guidestones is a certain R.C. Christian, and guess what his name adds up to? 76. But then take a look at the area code. His Guidestones are in 706. The numbers just keep on coming. July 6th is the 187th day of the year in the Gregorian calendar. 178 days remain until the end of the year. Kabbalah equals 178, bringing us right back around to this very numbers game, whereas Society of Jesus and Washington, D.C. both equal 187. Simply incredible. Something else worth mentioning, actually would be a crime not to, is that the sun lined up with Sirius on 7-6. The alignment happens every year during the first week of July and would not be missed at the Guidestones. In ancient Egypt, both Isis and Anubis were identified with Sirius. The mysteries of Isis centered upon the cycles of death and rebirth, whereas the jackal-headed Elohim Anubis was capable of walking the line between the worlds of the living and the dead. Likewise, in ancient sh uh, shamanic cultures, Sirius was believed to be a portal where the souls of the dead departed this realm for the next. And again, seeing as how CERN fired up her engines a day earlier, you will have your work cut out. Uh, you will have your work cut out, convincing me that this wasn't a death and resurrection ceremony for the present Great Reset, which kind of is a little bit about what we're talking about tonight. Do you recall Rule Number One of the Guidestones, which stated the following: Maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Half a million people dials the clock back 400 years ago to 1,600 numbers, pinning us precisely in the whereabouts when the, when the descendants of our controllers were celebrating the news that Satan's short season had arrived and they were no longer required to play by the rules. Now, I will emphasize here that I really don't know when Satan's short season arrived, but um, I do, as you guys hopefully know by now, I do highly suspect that... Um, Somewhere between five, 1500 and the 1700s, uh, the Millennial Kingdom came to an end, and I don't really know where. The resurrection claim, oh, this is an edit, I wrote this a couple days ago. The resurrection claim wasn't able to slip by without controversy, and it didn't in the least surprise me. Regardless, I'm always appreciative of added information, which readers send my way, even when their purpose is to disagree. An ever-accumulative collection of scripture helps give way to better research decisions on my part. 
somehow the following passage in Second Baruch slipped right by me. And Second Baruch has a lot to say about pre-existence. And guys, that was a my the game changer for me. I wish I had seen it earlier because it's the far side of spectacular. But as I often claim, better late than never. And so this is what it says. Starting in chapter 49. Nevertheless, I will again ask from you, O Elohim, yea, I will ask mercy from him who made all things. In what shape will those live who live in your day? Or how will the splendor of those who are after that time continue? Will they then resume this form of the present and put on these uh, entrammeling members which are now involved in evils and which evils are consummated? Or will you perchance change these things which have been in the world as also the world? And he answered and said unto me, Hear, Baruch, this word, and write in the remembrance of your heart all that you shall learn. For the earth shall then assuredly restore the dead, which it now receives, in order to preserve them. It shall make no change in their form, but as it has received, so shall it restore them. And as I delivered them unto it, so also shall it raise them. For then it will be necessary to show to the living that the dead have come to life again. And that those who had departed had returned again. Second Baruch chapter 49. How do you read a passage such as this one? It's talking about the restoration of the dead. Baruch asks a question and Uriel responds that the future restoration will make no change in their forms whatsoever. However, the earth has received any given person, then that is how she offers them back up on the day of resurrection. They will look exactly the same. I take that to mean everyone will return at the same age of their departure, and also that they will theoretically be totally recognizable from their former self. It means adults will make a sudden reemergence, but then so will the children. I don't know about you, but the snippet from Second Baruch not only gave Revelation a second witness, it made me more confident in the suggestion that the post-mud flood world was quite possibly and suddenly repopulated by the resurrected. Dun dun dun. I hate to do this to you, but you should totally read another one of my papers, Pre-Existence. And for those of you in this group, I spent two weeks going over that uh, particular paper. The question that has long vexed me is why one pre-existent soul would grow into adulthood, whereas another would enter the womb only to be aborted or sacrificed at the altar of Moloch. We cannot possibly know the number of children who were murdered for ritual over the last 7,000 years of his story. To this very hour, it's an ongoing problem, though, as there is an estimated 125,000 abortions each and every day, corresponding to something like 40 to 50 million abortions per year, and that's uh, worldwide numbers. It's a numbers game. Hasatan is buying his time. Every murdered child is another potential vacant seat at the banquet table in New Yerushalayim. Not to mention the countless generations which were expected of that child also eliminated at the altar. And we saw that with Cain and Abel. All the uh, pre-existent souls that were expecting to be born under Abel that were now no longer able to. Yes, adults would also be resurrected in this scenario. I'm proposing, though certainly not all of them, as most adults have already made their bed. 
That is to say, they have either forsaken Messiah or the Torah of Yahuwah or both. Children and babies were never given the opportunity to overcome the lies of this world. For the remainder of this exercise, I'm not nearly concerned for the adults filing into the vacant cities, as I am for the babies and the children cropping up in every conceivable, conceivable corner of this realm. Look, I'm not saying they were the resurrected with certainty. People have all sorts of theories regarding the founding problem, one of which involves cloning. This has been a big discussion over the last few weeks in this community and many others, the idea of these children being clones. Those who follow my work should know by now that I give scripture the old college try whenever possible. I seek out ancient text, uh, scripture, uh, non-canonical scripture, and other texts for my informants, and Yochanan didn't say the short season would be met by clones. No, he said, the dead resurrected. If only he said clones. He didn't, though. Also, there are passages in Enoch as well as Daniel which seem to infer that not everyone will be resurrected from the dead. That is another topic which I've covered and don't intend to repeat it here. The entire subject matter is a complicated one, and might I add, beyond our own dogmatic bullet points of comprehension. I am leaving all options on the table, and clones is one of them. But in the end, I'm going with what can best be demonstrated in the book. And Revelation says what it says. Either we are in the short season, or we are not. And the rest of the dead live again after the thousand years were finished. Now, let me just quickly say about this, the clones issue. I want to make this clear because a lot of people, I've been getting a lot of comments. People are coming to me like, no, you need to jump on the clones bandwagon. You know, all these children were clones as we go through this. Well, let's just... Let's just ask some logical, you know, let's get some deductive reasoning here. So let's say that the, the powers that be, uh, our controllers, they create millions of clones, all right? Now, you know, I would, our controllers are cheap, okay? They are, they're cheap. Look at, like, NASA, it's cheap. Uh, yeah, they make tons of money, but look at, the, you know, their programs. It, you, you can detect the lies very easily. So... What, what is the cheaper option? Uh, making, I mean, the idea of cloning is replicating someone. Are we replicating millions of unique models? Are they all looking the same? What is this looking like, right? Or, or are they spending the money on genetically making, you know, unique uh, creatures? Well, the, that's not the problem. The problem is once you clone all these children, how are you filling those with a spirit and a soul? Are they stealing them from, the, from heaven? I don't think so. Are they stealing them from Sheol? No. Where are they getting them from? Well, in the book of Enoch, it says that there's two types of spirits. There's terrestrial spirits, and there's uh, heavenly spirits. And who were the terrestrial spirits? The Nephilim. Those were the children of the Watchers. The Nephilim became the demons. Well, the children of the Nephilim became the Nephilim. Okay? So, I just want everyone to be clear if, you, if we are claiming that our descendants, yes, we all descended from these children, if we are claiming that our descendants were the Nephilim, that they are terrestrial-born spirits, then that makes us Nephilim. I can't, I mean, I can't see it any other way. Maybe that's the big conspiracy. You know, all the humans are really dead, and we're really the Nephilim. You know, the Nephilim won the day. I don't know. I'm... I'm Excuse my sarcasm, but I just I, I think about these things, and I try to think about all the different options, and I'm just not seeing it. All right. Uh, and there was one other point I wanted to cover on this. 
And uh, that probably is good enough. All right, let's keep moving on. All right, I need another swig of coffee. All on board the orphan train. Orphans are everywhere in 19th century literature. Dorothy Gale was an orphan, and she went over the rainbow. Anne was an orphan, and she managed Green Gables. I actually went to the Green Gables house. I, I'm getting distracted. Sorry. Then again, Heidi was given a second chance in the Alps, and she was an orphan. Mowgli, too, except he was raised by wolves in India. And Jane Eyre was an orphan. Oliver Twist and a whole lot of others. Uh, a lot of other Charles Dickens characters were orphans, including Pip from Great Expectations, Sidney Carton from A Tale of Two Cities, Nell Trent of The Old Curiosity Shop, Esther Summerson of Bleak House, as well as David Copperfield and Martin uh, Chuslowitzin from said titles. And then there's Tarzan of the Apes. I barely covered them. The list goes on and on and on. Orphans were in the forefront of our consciousness for a time, painted like exoteric hieroglyphs within the alphabetized symbols of dried ink. I have long considered the arcane without being entirely able to put my finger on the issue, but now I believe I'm finally onto something. If you haven't guessed by now, it relates to the passage we read earlier in Revelation chapter 20. This is the part where you interrupt me, seeing as how your patience has worn thin, and you happen to be a psychologist. Your doctrinal thesis was on Steven Spielberg movies, and the one you stood up for the most was Hook, despite all the peer pressure to go with the Auschwitz movie. Peter Pan was an orphan, as well as the Lost Boys of Neverland, and so you're quite certain, as literary devices go, the heavy-handed presence of orphans in classic and contemporary fiction are simply there to remind us that we spend our childhood hoping to grow up, while the rest of our adult lives attempt to reclaim what we've foolishly abandoned, and also something about nihilism, the meaningless randomness of existence, and how we are all destined as adult children to become orphans. Did I get that right? That must be the answer we were all seeking. There are those there are those hieroglyphs I, I was mentioning earlier. Never mind that Peter Pan has pedophilia scribbled all over it. We mustn't pull that curtain. Pippi Longstocking and Little Orphan Annie were also orphans, by the way. And that little French girl from Les Miserables. Miserables. Miserable. <laughs> if you held a gun to my head, I could not pronounce a French word accurately. And I lived there for a time. Anyways, there are others. Les Miserables. Okay, I still I, I still will mispronounce it. But thank you. The sheer number of orphans isn't just a metaphysical problem of 19th century literature, though. Orphans were cropping up everywhere at one time, practically busting through the windows, popping up from the floorboards, tumbling out of the pantry, growing like weeds on the back porch, and overtaking a town near you. How many adults can you find surrounding the dead horse in that picture? I see none. The street is quite literally overrun with little people. Remember that Mother Goose poem about the little old lady who lived in a shoe? She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. They were orphans. She then gave them some broth without any bread and whipped them all soundly and put them to bed. Or as little orphan Annie might put it, it's a hard knock life for us. Look at all those babies, why don't you? Huddled in a shopping cart looking totally confused as to who they are or where they're going, much less where they've come from. Off to the market is my best guess. Orphans, every last one of them, probably couldn't hand them off to the adults fast enough. And so I'll ask, where in the world did all these babies come from? That one is easy, you will tell me. You, 
began drawing a diagram of a woman's uterus on the chalkboard. When a daddy loves a mommy, you see, society had a title for their mothers, fallen women. Now, I, sh I should comment. I, I wanted to go in and comment on these, these paintings. Just look at these paintings, particularly the top two. We don't have pictures of these so-called fallen women, but the paintings will show you woman after woman after woman, all fallen women, just lining up to hand over the babies. Where have you ever seen that? Where have you ever seen lines of... I mean, we hear stories of a woman dropping off a baby on the, at the firehouse station porch, uh, but there's like one after the next. Just, you know, there's three in that one painting, the other, there's just a lineup of them. Interest, interesting verbiage, fallen women. Most students of history are kept unaware of the fact that there were a series of laws passed into effect in the 1800s, whereas unwed mothers were coerced to hand over their children to authorities just so that they could be carted off to the market for strangers. Thousands upon thousands of women supposedly complied, but why? Nearly all we are given are paintings to show for it. The official explanation often falls upon the shame of immorality mixed with the toxic ingredients of industrialization workhouses. They wanted to escape the trappings of parenthood while making a better life for themselves and simultaneously living out the pleasure that brought about the baby in the first place, making the term fallen women a, or fallen woman a double entrande as well as a circular pattern. And so they abandoned their children to child labor institutions and re-education centers. At the Founding Hospital in London, an estimated 4,500 women handed over their children, and that's just one hospital. There were as many as four founding asylums in New York City alone, in which they were collectively turning over a thousand babies annually. By 1847, the number of child migrants who had been identified as orphans in Canada were unprecedented. Though Grasse Ely in Quebec, Quebec's a lovely place, I've been there, can't pronounce it, usually managed 10 orphans per year. They were overrun with more than 100 in less than a month. So they went from 10 per year to 100 per month. And by years in, thousands had arrived. So from 10 per year to 100 in a month to thousands in a year. Italy fared no better. Infants were deposited into foundling homes in scathing numbers. The trend started as early as the 1830s, when as many as 32,000 infants were uh, reportedly uh, were whatever, a little misprint there, but we're showing up per year reportedly. Nearby Spain and Portugal saw as many as 15,000 annual foundlings each. That number exceeded 35,000 per year within two decades, so that Italy had over 1,200 locations where newborns could be dropped off. Before 1860, some 374,000 recorded infants rounded the turnstiles in Milan, Naples, and Florence alone. Beginning in the 1840s, a swelling influx of foundlings were handed over to the state. We're talking hundreds of thousands of children, and in the decades to come, in the millions. The abandonment of babies became so commonplace that asylums were established in every major city on this flat, motionless plain. There were post office boxes where you could literally drop off your child. No questions asked. Gradini refers to the steps of the church where they were found, or Del Rio by the river, or Dio Livi, God will take care of them. 
or get, take care of you. Those are Italian last names. Uh, the idea there is I wish I had time to flesh that out more was that many people basically just assigning names to children. Entire genealogies, if they had a genealogy, were scrubbed and uh, rewritten. And uh, I really question um, a lot of our own you know, abilities. And everyone says, oh, I could trace my family back. So, well, can you really? How do you know? How do you know? Um, and then this is also something really, you know, important with the elite that they, I think, do trace their families back. And, um, we're not one of them. By 1887, founding homes in St. Petersburg and Moscow began receiving over 27,000 babies on their doorstep. Historian David L. Renzo records that Moscow was receiving between 16,000 and 18,000 infants annually by the 1880s. And furthermore, sending over 10,000 10,000 of these each year to outlying villages for care. In 1882, there were uh, there were all told 41,720 foundlings from the Moscow home living with 32,000 foster families scattered throughout 4,418 villages. A dozen villages had over 90 fosterings each. Entire cartloads of foundlings were trucked in by women known as, let's see if I could pronounce this right, uh, Commission Commissionerky, and we saw a picture of one such woman with the babies. Which she's say right here. I've already shown you one such photo of the baby collectors. Mothers were apparently offering them up whenever the cart rolled around. How are these uh, Commissionerky announcing their arrival exactly? With ice cream truck music, fees for babies in bulk were apparently substantial, which reportedly provided these women with a comfortable living. Annie McPherson will go down in history as the woman who helped to solve the Great Britain problem and scamming more than 100,000 families, shipping them from the United Kingdom to Canada, New Zealand, and South Africa, even to Australia, so that they could be sold into child labor. 100,000 is a hell of a lot of children for anybody to manage, much less to remove from one concentrated area. And she scammed them all. She is described as a philanthropist, by the way. There's no possible way any one individual could dispose of so many and still fly under the radar unless the government were involved, which makes McPherson uh, a straw man. The sheer number of no-name children without a mommy and daddy who were shipped off to one work factory or another is likely unfathomable and will never be made known. Nearly a decade before the American Civil War, 1854 to be precise, orphans had become such a problem, problem in the streets of New York City alone that trains were organized with the sole purpose of distributing children to farming communities across the U.S. You might be wondering who was capable of organizing such an endeavor. Snatching children off the streets, coaxing them with candy maybe, and then loading them by the cartload in, onto the Magic Choo Choo Express. Well, I was too. It might have been the coachman from Pinocchio, for all I know. There's another interesting orphan tale for you from the 1800s. The only information we are readily given on the origins of the orphan train, per its wiki article, which I link right there, is that the New York Juvenile Asylum was primarily responsible. They were founded in 1851 by 24 concerned citizens, quote-unquote, of New York, but we are not given names. Ph philanthropists every last one of them. Apparently, Juvenile Asylum was too hard knock of a title, 
And so they later reorganized into the sweet and fragrant-sounding Children's Village. Oh, all the better to lure them with. The primary name given to us belongs to Charles Loring Brace, also a philanthropist. Brace got a start opening an NYC Lodge house for the Newsboys, which in turn inspired several of Horatio Alger's novels and eventually a Disney movie, a musical that then went to Broadway, then went back to the movie again. I've jumped over to Brace's wiki article, by the way. Try to keep up. You can follow along on there if you'd like. Other associates of his were Frederick Douglass. Ironic, seeing as how Brace was an abolitionist, and the abolitionists were swimming with spooks, Douglas being a little too obvious, but also because the orphan train was a poorly masked slave operation, with the majority of its ticket holders being young Irishmen. So just if you understand what's going on here, the abolitionists were apparently the ones that were trying to bring it into slavery. They had the Underground Railroad. Well, they had the... Another kind of railroad is called the orphan train. So they were, there were abolitionists who were actually organizing slave labor of children, which is does not go well with the official narrative at all. And get this, Brace was very good friends with Frederick Law Olmsted. You guys recognize the name? You've got to be kidding me. No, Wiki doesn't outright confess to it at the moment. They simply claim Olmsted designed his estate some 20 miles north of New York. That's code word for friends. Don't take my word for it, though. Sometimes you have to keep digging in other places. I linked it there. Brace and Frederick Law Olmsted's brother, John Hole, were roommates at Yale. He accompanied both brothers, John Hole and Frederick Law Olmsted, on walking tours through southern England and Wales, while Olmsted, gets this, get this, figured out the quote-unquote landscaping problem with the past residents of Great Britain left behind. Okay, so they were they were actually mud flooding uh, Great Britain. The government was doing this, and Olmsted was over there helping to landscape. Well, there's more to it than this. Olmsted was a fixer. This was the guy who designed Central Park in New York, cultivating the landscape to its modern unnatural proportions. And you'll never guess what his last career project was. Guess. I know I said you wouldn't, but take a stab at it anyways. Olmsted designed the landscape for the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. And so the guy who started the orphan trains was a good friend of his. And you could just see how they're connected. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. Back at the Orphan Train Wiki article, we read a great many things, one of which has very few children understanding what was happening to them when they were handed a Bible by the field agent tasked with escorting them to the train. That's just a nice way of saying the dog catchers were roaming the streets and that those who couldn't run fast enough were abducted. I, I do want to point out here, and I, I don't think I even appreciated this, is that each of those children were handed a Bible. I mean, that's the, that's the conduct they tell us. And uh, I need to stress this more, guys, that the 1800s was very, very biblical. And you read um, uh, transcendentalists like Ralph Waldo Emerson, a naturalist like John Muir, uh, evolutionists like uh, Darwin. They all spoke very biblically. They quoted from the Bible, and they knew it. They knew it better than any Christian today. They could out-quote uh, the Bible to any Christian today, probably most pastors. 
they knew the Bible up and down. They memorized it. And so it's interesting that they're handing these children Bibles, all right? And so think about the connotations of what I'm implying might be happening here and the fact that they are learning about the gospel. They're learning about, they have the opportunity to read the Torah, the gospels, all of it. Anyways, uh, that's just a nice way of saying the dog catchers were roaming the streets. I wrote, I read that. I feel like the grandpa and Princess Bride, like I have to repeat myself. And that those who couldn't run fast enough were abducted. It even states many of the nabbed expressed anger and resentment upon learning they'd been duped. That says dubbed, but it should say duped. Where's my, I need editors. Especially since they had relatives back home. Oh, gee. Tell me the, these philanthropy abolitionists weren't dealing in human trafficking again. It can therefore be stated that not all orphan-trained children were true orphans. No, they were made into orphans through the forced removal from their biological families and distribution into distant places, often a week's journey by train. I am told it was quite common to have children separated from their siblings, and that was all by design. It gets worse, but you will need the eyes of a Bornean Tarsier to read the print. That's a animal that has like incredible night eyesight, huge eyes. No need to worry because I will deliver the cliff notes. Upon arrival, orphan-trained children were paraded from the depot to the local playhouse, uh, where they were put up on stage and expected to sing or perform for the prospective parent, thus the origin of the term, up for adoption. That actually started with the orphan train in the 1800s. We then read how people came along and prodded them and looked and felt and saw how many teeth they had. Slapping the thigh, checking out the goods, and not forgetting to see, not forgetting the dental work. Yeah, sounds like an auction house to me as well. It actually reminds me of that scene from Star Wars where they like the, the Jawas lined up all the droids after they'd kidnapped them and you know sold them. Here is how an author phrased it in a completely separate article, Propose uh, Purpose with advertising her children's book series. She says, the trains stopped at towns where people were waiting to see and selected children. A train's arrival would be advertised in advance with handbills, posters, and notices in the newspapers. Some people were interested in choosing a child to raise as their own. Others, though, were looking for older children who could do housework, farm chores, or other labor. This is a, an ad for a child's book of uh, literature. Only some people were interested in choosing a child to raise as their own, certainly not all of them. The author then adds, others, though, were looking for older children who could do housework, farm chores, or other labor. And that's, a, of course, the PG-rated version. You needn't even read between the lines with this stuff. That's a rather lame attempt at describing slave labor while letting the abolitionist sponsor orphan train off the hook. How often do you suspect the pedo people arrived for the droid lineup with the other moisture farmers when the Jawas pulled the sand crawler into town? That's a Star Wars reference, by the way. Sexual slavery is something which the orphan train historians seem unwilling to talk about, but was a reality all the same. There are documented accounts with what little documentation is given to us of children being chained up in the barn and a great many ran away from their newfound plantation. And, you know, this generation of people, they didn't talk about this stuff. Like there wasn't even, there weren't even psychologists to go to, to, you know, talk about your childhood and how messed up it made you and all your daddy issues or the fact that, you know, they had adoptive daddy issues, which is a whole different ballgame. 
Meanwhile, in New York City, we stumble upon photos such as this one. We are told it was probably taken during the labor parade in 1909, less than a decade removed from World War I or beforehand. And what do we see? A Yiddish girl and an English girl speaking on behalf of the little people, calling out child slavery. Speaking of which, you've got a couple pages, uh, two, three pages there I threw in. You could scroll through those. You've probably all seen them before. All the child labor. Industrialization. You wanted to know why so many children were forced into the coal mines and the factories. Industrialization is the reason for the season. That may not be the answer you were seeking, but it, it's what we are all, we, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. It's what we are more often than not given, child slavery, because Lincoln freed the plantation slaves and society couldn't continue on without them. Actually, he sold all Americans into slavery, but that's a discussion for a separate hour. Also, blame the Puritans. That's another excuse I've seen floating around on web pages. It was Puritan mentality which pushed children onto the plantation. There are various explanations to these photos, but none are satisfactory. You should know then that I'm starting to form a greater peripheral vision in all of this. Something else was going on aside from the obvious, and I'm curious if you see it. What would you say the ratio is between child and adult workers in photos such as this one? In most of these photos, it's difficult even finding an adult, but I'm counting three to one this time around. The girl in the foreground isn't even wearing shoes. And then there's her handler keeping a close watch over her. He is wearing shoes, and they appear polished. Probably had them buffed by the corner slave boy 20 minutes earlier. And now what is he up to? Making sure the little girl presses all the right buttons in their proper order. Society depends upon her. The way his hand is on his hip tells me she was probably acting naughty a moment ago. What do you suppose her operations manager might do if she slips up again, stepping out of line with those bare feet of hers? If only those two boys would jump his ass. They look hard knock enough and could totally take him. Well, I'll be. Stick a pipe in that one and it's off to the mill for Tiny Tim. With a walking stick and a day's water and tobacco ration, seems like he's thought of everything. Make sure the old lady has dinner ready when he gets back. Also, excuse my German, but who the hell, because hell is a German word, orders a, six, a six-year-old chimney sweep? Tell me. Answer me if you know. That takes chim chim chimmery to a whole new level of nanny. I think I just discovered Bert's childhood photo, and this is it. From the looks of it, he's fresh off the job. Bankers, probably. Oh, I'm sure they would have hired a grown-up to give the smokestack a polish if it weren't for all those millions of fallen women dropping off babies in baskets by the wagon load. Where are all the adult workers and what happened to them exactly? They obviously didn't think that through when marching off with Napoleon for Waterloo. It's not simply that there weren't enough adult workers in the city either. There were apparently far too many children to lure into, the, into any one coal pit because, as we've already seen, an added surplus won their very own golden ticket onto the Fanling Express. There are those orphan-trained children again, most likely, in the picture provided, finally settled into the country life by the looks of it, far removed from the gang-banging Fanling streets of the city and their pesky relatives. Because nothing says industrialization and the dire need for slave labor, quite like a row of younglings posing with their work buckets. 
They often arrived at the depot without birth certificates or any kind of identification paperwork because they had none. Sometimes even their names were changed by their adoptive parents. If they even had names, we don't really know. Family crests as well as generational ties and entire lineages were swapped or even rebooted if they ever had one to begin with. I get the feeling that the confusion was intentional, if not masterfully orchestrated, starting with the placement of the baby on the doorstep. What memories remained among the older foundlings likely faded in time, easily reprogrammed by the re-education camps that were the 19th and 20th centuries? And of course, the 21st century is no better. How many multi-generation Midwesterners living today? not forgetting the big city folk and the suburbanites, that's basically all of us, have the remotest clue of their origin story. What if much to everything that we know of our own genealogies were carefully masked, completely fabricated by the mud flood inheritors? All right, moving on to incubator infants and the Luna babies. We are on page 32, if you need caught up. I'm so glad that didn't land on page 33. Mention was made already regarding my feelings towards the 19th and 20th centuries, that they were the equivalent of re-education camps, and I stand by it. I hate to break the news, but we're still living in, in one if you're left unaware. The military-industrial complex, as well as the media, steers the ship, whereas initiates take the stage to flesh out the intel script. Modern history in a nutshell. I'm leaving out a few key ingredients, but my readers know how the cake mix is prepared and then placed into the oven by now. You would also be made aware then that the world fairs have their part to play in the indoctrination. And we've already seen some connection between the world fairs and the orphan train organizers. Eventually, the children of the mud flood grew up and grew old with babies and then grandbabies of their own. What memories they retained in duality with what was successfully scrubbed and rewritten by their controllers, as well as their knowledge of society's functions beyond our own recollection remains in question. The obvious part by this point, is that the elite were successful in carting millions of souls to their expositions before cars were invented, and in a time when the home harvest meant life or death. How many days or weeks the average pilgrim set aside to make the journey by horse and buggy or train, and to cities advertised to them as being constructed of chaff, really popsicle sticks and glue, is measured perhaps by the sheer weight of lies they ingested upon arrival. Baby incubators were officially invented in 1888 by Dr. Alan M. Thomas and William Champion, but would not be introduced to the world until the 1896 World's Fair, dubbed the Great Industrial Exposition of Berlin. So they basically premiered in, in Berlin. Considering the sheer number of mud flood orphans that had already manifested and were still actively being distributed across the realm, its exposition Origins contain all the familiar flavors of duplicity. The story we are given is that somebody by the name of Martin Coney, uh, no relation apparently to Coney of Coney Island, held an exhibit called uh, Kinderbrutanstalt. Kinderbrutanstalt, if I can pronounce German, which when translated literally means child hatchery, to demonstrate the effectiveness of infant incubators. Upon arriving in Berlin, Coney was somehow capable of acquiring several premature babies on loan from the uh, Charity Hospital, thanks in part to its hospital director, Rudolf Virchow. Nothing unordinary to see there, I'm sure. 
where were the parents of said babies while they were put on display for a quarter a peak? I see nobody sitting in the corner knitting. Many of the babies died while under Coney's care. Oh, I'm sure the parents didn't mind too much. Of the 8,000 infants which Coney is said to have ultimately display, displayed for his World Fair audiences, 8,000, mind you, only 6,500 of them lived. The story is spun in such a way as to have Coney saving the 6,500 in an era when the hospitals refused to do so. But then where are the parents in all of this? Were they already orphan babies or are these more fallen women we're dealing with? Assumedly, the parents of Coney's incubator babies were told that their infants were not expected to live. But knowing how a functioning mother refuses to be separated from her child until they're either dead or buried in the ground, it seems far more likely a scenario that Virchow's hospital staff informed them that the child did not last the hour. And that's one of the, you know, the big elephants in the room here is the hospitals were in the child scheme, uh, selling children. How many parents were told that uh, their child had died and they were still alive? I mean, it's, I don't know. There's a reason that, um, I don't know if I said this earlier in the recording, but there's a reason why Yah had all babies born on a leash, people. It's called the umbilical cord. They come out attached to the mom. Like, uh, he, <laughs> he didn't want babies separated for a reason. They're supposed to go straight to the breast and hang there for a while. Following the, Ber uh, the Berlin Exposition, Coney continued his baby incubator displays for Great Britain's 1897 Victorian-era exposition in London, complete with infants on loan from France. Oh, I need to point out here that also, I, I didn't talk about this in here, but the hospitals were awful back then. If you think hospitals are bad now, like, women used to be uh, strapped down. And the men weren't allowed in there. They would strap the women down and they would just take the baby straight from the moms. So if you entered a hospital, uh, you were probably pretty indoctrinated by this point if you thought that was a good thing. I mean, I would have, uh, you know, if my wife went into labor, I would, I don't know, we would flee to the cornfield to have the babies. Anyways, getting back to the Victorian era exposition in 1897, this time around, uh, he transported the babies via boat across the English Channel, utilizing baskets with hot water bottles to keep them warm. Far as I can tell, no parents were accounted for in this tale as well. His incubator baby displays continued at the 1898 Trans-Mississippi International Exposition in Omaha, Nebraska, followed by the Exposition Universal, uh, Universally or Universal, in Paris in 1900, and the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, 1901, courtesy of local hospital loans. Again, no parents are accounted for. Starting in 1903, Coney's baby incubators made the move to Coney Island in Brooklyn, New York. No name uh, relation, apparently. Uh, I should have mentioned, too, is that people would actually come up and adopt these babies. Like, they would just come and take them. A permanent move was then made to Luna Park the following year, Coney Island's largest amusement park, where they remained a fixture until 1943, not that long ago. His incubator baby uh, sideshow would hit the road every now and then, visiting the 1915 Panama Pacific International Expo in San Francisco, the 1933 Chicago Century of Progress Exposition, and the 1939 New York World's Fair. But from that time forward, the infants of Coney's child hatchery had a name for themselves, Luna Babies. Luna, in case you were left unaware, is of Latin origin and means moon. 
In Roman mythology, in Roman mythology, Luna was the divine personification, or you might even say the Ruach of the moon. From what I can tell, there was never a shortage of hospitals willing to loan these Luna babies out to Coney over an incredible 47-year period. That's nearly a half-century of sideshow admissions before incubators became the standardized practice. And so I will ask, where did all of these babies truly come from? And if it came down to the simple equation of hospitals providing or tossing them, how many parents ultimately, ultimately knew about the fate of their children is something I'd like to know. All right, now we're on page 36, and this is where a lot of, there's been a lot of talk recently with the, the Cabbage Patch Babies. The original Cabbage Patch Babies. While Martin Coney was busily initiating World Expo audiences to his incubator babies, Another fascinating, though mostly forgotten, cultural phenomenon was being showcased via mailboxes across the motionless plane of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. They come in the form of photo-manipulated postcards of French design, surreal, real compositing. I have already shown you three examples, but there are others. And what do we see? The same farmer who is dutifully watering his crop in one postcard can be seen attempting to pawn his produce off to respective buyers in another. We have all heard about the Cabbage Patch Babies before, infants quite literally harvested from the earth. That is not the only way in which the mystery babies are depicted as being harvested, though. The so-called Cabbage Patch Babies were shown as being manifested upon the earth in more, than, uh, more ways than one. There are probably countless depictions of the Cabbage Patch Babies to be uncovered, though I have only shown you one more. But then we see infants being hatched out of eggs or flower pots, teacups and bird's nest, spilling out by the dozens, reminding us once again of Coney's Luna babies. Entire boatloads of babies with mysterious origins are also depicted, directing our attention to the post-mud flood immigration narrative, replete with Ellis Island overtones. I'm curious how many of you can just trace that your family came through Ellis Island. I know uh, my wife's family came through Ellis Island. It seems like probably most people here in the Americas are, uh, if they're third or fourth generation American, they came through Ellis Island. It is the woman in the uh, dr uh, Drindle attire who really nabs my attention, though. You'll find out why soon enough. Infants can be found in the wetlands, the marshes. She seems capable of scooping them up in baskets without effort. And then we see more and more, and I, there's hundreds of these photos, uh, these composite images to look through. Hundreds you can find online. It is harvest already again. The Cabbage Patch children continue sprouting by the thousands. But how does one go about feeding them without a mother to nurse? Best to hook them up to the sheep, I guess. You can see that one picture right there. Babies arrive by air in a balloon resembling a nipple, a slightly different take on the stork narrative. Of course, those arriving by rail have the orphan train written all over it. What is it with the French postcard people being so obsessed with nature babies? I'm asking. Answer me if you know. Try not to make a face while I ponder the possibility out loud that art is imitating life rather than the other way around because you never really know your mother was right in thinking it might get stuck like that you know making a face you know just a really long sentence 
I have already connected the dots between the founding overflow and the decades following the mud flood event, as well as child slavery and the orphan train, but even before that I had started out insinuating the possibility that the dead would live again during the short season. Um, I may comment on this later, but I'll just point this out. You guys know with my research that I believe that, um, interesting enough, that Europe, particularly Great Britain and France, were was ground zero for the Millennial Kingdom. All right, so it's kind of interesting coming from there. Well, I found another passage in the annals of Scripture which might help paint a picture as to what was happening. Before doing so, I will remind you of a repeated mantra around here. That nothing happened to Yasharel, which did not first happen to the patriarchs, spiritually speaking. And so here you go. So this book comes from Yasher or Jasher, chapter 67. And when the children of Yasharel heard this thing, which Pharaoh had commanded to cast their male children into the river, some of the people separated from their women and others adhered to them. And from that day forward, when the time of delivery arrived to those women of Yasharel who had remained with their men, they went to the field to bring forth there, and they brought forth in the field and left their children upon the field and returned home. And Yahuwah, who had sworn to their ancestors to multiply them, sent one of his ministering angels, which are in heaven, to wash each child in water, to anoint and swathe it, and to put into its hands two smooth stones, from one of which it sucked milk, and from the other honey. And he caused its hair to grow to its knees, by which it might cover itself, to comfort it and to cleave to it through his compassion for it. And when Elihim had compassion over them and had desired to multiply them upon the face of the land, he ordered his earth to receive them, to be preserved therein till the time of their growing up, after which the earth opened its mouth and vomited them forth, and they sprouted forth from the city like the herb of the earth and the grass of the forest. And they returned each to his family and to his father's house, and they remained with him. And the babes of the children of Yasharel were upon the earth like the herb of the field, through Elohim's grace to them. And when all the Mitzrayim saw this thing, they went forth each to his field with his yoke of oxen and his plowshare, and they plowed it up as one plows the earth at sea time. Now, keep in mind, this is the Mitzrayim, the Egyptians plowing them up. Okay, they're the ones harvesting them. And when they plowed, they were unable to hurt the infants of the children of Yasharel. That's really interesting that the children could not be hurt so the people increased and waxed exceedingly these are the children of yasharel and pharaoh ordered his officers daily to go to goshen to seek for the babes of the children of yasharel and when they had sought and found one they took it from its mother's bosom by force and threw it into the river but the female child they left with its mother thus did the mitrium do to yasharel all the days even the children of Yasharel were delivered from the, from the womb under supernatural circumstances, you see. They, there were angels present to feed them. They may have been raised on the plantation afterwards, but then again, so were the children of the mud flood. Slaves indebted to their masters, nearly every last one of them. What we are doing here is finding similarities between both parties, Yasharel and Mitraim with the children of the mud flood, and there are plenty to be had. Another thing we read is that Pharaoh was trying to frustrate their numbers, which is what we've already observed with the mud flood inheritors. And what else is happening? They were trying to reduce their numbers. 
Sounds awfully familiar, no? Command number one on the Georgia Guidestones. Yashara was given a mysterious origin story in the eyes of their controllers because the earth had swallowed them. It says they literally sprouted forth like the herb of the earth and the grass of the forest. At the very least, you cannot tell me the French postcard makers are not imitating life. It did happen in his story, according to Yasher. The original Cabbage Patch Babies were Yahuwah's people. And so I'll just place this here. There is the picture of the woman again. There she is again, the German woman in the Dirndl, still making her rounds, wishing you a happy Xmas while she shakes babies out of the foliage and making it look all too easy. Where is a man in Lederhosen when you need him? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers few, apparently. Seriously, anyone who ever claimed money grows on trees are way off. A lazy stroll through a forest such as that one will cost you. Of course, I would be remiss to overlook the other comeback in the 1800s, and that was the Stork Babies, thanks in part to Hans Christian Andersen. At least that's what they, they tell us, that he was the big contributor. Long before his fairy tale repackaging, the Stork legend can be found in Norse and Slavic as well as British mythology. The Brits were really into the Storks. It's no wonder then that the baby delivery service made its return. While the children of the mud flood were cropping up in orphanages and railway depots, as well as running amok through the city gutters, images of storks sailing through the clouds filled the imaginations of many. Once again, I have come prepared with postcards to prove it. Just look at them, why don't you? Babies are depicted as inhabiting the marshlands, almost like a sea of souls, until a stork can swoop in and collect them. Yes, it is true that they perfectly complement the Cabbage Patch Babies, as well as the Asher narrative, but in doing so, the stork manages to hike it up to the next level. The very notion of a stork delivering a baby to its adoptive mother and father may work as a deterrent from the birds and the bees talk on a straightforward exoteric level, but rather ironically, on, and on a deeper esoteric level, the stork story is saturated with spiritual implications which speak of the child's pre-existence. Wiki doesn't have a lot to offer on the stork narrative, but we are given a few gems to work with. Uh, you can see the, the little cutout there. Notably, it's, as I was already saying, that the stork resurgence only came about during the 1800s. Uh, perfect timing. But then keep reading. Um, uh, what is that? Adibarstein. I love German. I wish I could pronounce it. Adibarstein is a German word which literally means stork's stone. Each of the children were given one. Not much is known about them, but if you were paying attention to the Yashar passage, I highlighted the quip about the ministering angels putting two smooth stones into the hands of babies without commenting upon it. Well, now you know. I was waiting until the appropriate moment. The stones kept them alive until the moment they could be delivered to their mothers. Also, the storks were angels in this scenario, which is to say... The stork stories are speaking of the spiritual realm. And if you look at all the original uh, mythologies, German, Nordic, so on and so forth, they all, they identify this as, we're talking spiritually here, you know, not just purely, you know, cutesy, exoteric. We're talking on a, on a spiritual plane that these storks were, the spirits were delivering babies from the sea of souls. And so you could see there the Cabbage Patch babies uh, in the marsh, and he's picking them up, you know. It's like delivering um, a pre-existent child. The storks were carrying souls from one realm to the next and in vast quantity. 
Of course, not everyone was thrilled with the arrangement, apparently. Another famous postcard making the rounds was, uh, you can see there that the stork is chasing the woman saying, I'll get you yet. And then the other woman is hitting the stork with her umbrella because she doesn't want the baby. Har har. Her name was Alice Guy Blush, by the way. Recognize her? The baby harvester from the postcards. If you need caught up around page 44. It's her, all right. Back then, she was simply known as Alice Guy, though. Very few people know anything about the silent film actress, not even the film historians, which is slightly odd considering the fact she was very likely the first filmmaker to put a narrative onto film. Yes, you heard me right. She was an actress and a filmmaker, the very first narrative filmmaker, but also a director and a woman to boot. And you'll never guess what the movie was about. Give me your best guess. I dare you to. Ask nearly any film historian to name the first narrative film, and they're likely to tell you it was The Great Train Robbery in 1906. I think that's what I was actually taught in college. I took a film history class. And if so, then they're way off. Well, here's your first clue. It was released in 1896 in Paris. I've included a picture of the movie in case you're running low on ideas. It involved babies and a cabbage patch, as if that's not suspicious. La Fieu, oh, uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. It's a beautiful French word. Is the title which translates to The Fairy of the Cabbages. Though more than likely its original title was The Birth of Children. Even The Fairy of the Cabbages is, is misdirection, it's misinformation. It was probably the birth of the children. Either way, the crux of both films involve the Cabbage Patch babies. The Wikipedia claims Alice Guy was a French pioneer filmmaker, and in fact, one of the first filmmakers to make a narrative fiction film, which, come to think of it, is a rather odd phrasing, considering I've already told you what the first movie was. Why not just claim she was the first person to make a narrative film, and that the Cabbage Patch movie was it? If you keep reading, the wiki admits she was snubbed by film historians, and it seems as though Intel is repeating the deed. Even if the identity of the first film narrative can be argued, and in fact another movie title is in the running, they could at least have claimed she was arguably the first filmmaker to make a narrative fiction film. Well, the Fairy of the Cabbages article does just that. It says it's arguably the world's first narrative film. There is an older film from 1895 titled The Water, The Watered Waterer, in which a boy plays a prank on an adult by stepping on a hose and stopping the flow of water, only to get sprayed in the face and a spanking afterwards. Its genre designation is arguable because it comes across more as a matter-of-fact documentation of a prank rather than a developing plot. The original 1896 plot line uh, to the Fairy of the Cabbages or I should say, the, the birth of the children, has already been pictured for us in the French postcards. It involves a pair of newlyweds walking through a cabbage patch during their honeymoon, who then happen upon a farmer actively harvesting his human crop. Yes, the first narrative film arguably ever made involves the selling of babies. No wonder why the movie has been largely snubbed. Also, the Alice Guy production is completely lost to the film vaults. Oh, gee. All we have to go by, visually speaking, is the 1900 and 1902 remakes, both by the same filmmaker. You'll have to watch them on your own. The 1900 version is improperly listed as the 1896 version on YouTube. 
I would say the falsified date stamp is forgivable, but I'm also guessing the misdirection is intended, as the entire scenario has changed. In the 1900 version, the Cabbage Patch Babies are still accounted for, but Alice Guy plays a fairy this time around, and far more importantly, the infants are never sold to Parisian passerbys. So they basically, you know, scrubbed that storyline. Another gold nugget on the Cabbage uh, Fairy wiki page places the film's origins with the infant exhibit in Paris. Um, if I could pronounce that, this is awful, guys. It's like, <laughs> whatever, you can see it. The Day Infants Exhibit in Paris. Those would be the baby incubators again. It's 1896 promo posters should nab your attention. Look closely. The heads of babies are shown growing in the place of the roses. Seriously, when tracing a line between the incubator babies and the Cabbage Patch babies some pages ago, I had absolutely no clue that articles such as this one had already done the sleuth work for me. Turns out I was spot on, and you thought I was making presumptions, didn't you? Inventing constellations in the connect the, date, in the, connect the dot game. Well, I wasn't. It all comes around full circle. The Fairy of the Cabbages was based upon the incubator display held in Paris. And so I will go out on a limb here and make yet another assertion, which not even the wiki cares to admit to. Alice Guy's original 1896 film wasn't simply inspired by the incubators, as she claims. No, she was promoting it. But in such a way as to fictionalize and ultimately trivialize the truth for her movie audiences. A movie pastime for its very, from its very inception, it seems. Trivializing the truth and making it to be fiction when they're actually giving you the truth. Also, I went ahead and included a picture of the exterior of the incubator exhibit, which housed live babies and sat under the shadow of the Eiffel Tower at the 1900 Exposition Universal. I'll say it again in case you missed it. Ex Exposition Universal in Paris was 1900, the very year when Alice Guy made her Cabbage Patch remake for new silver screen audiences more promotion, it seems. The French film industry was a repeat offender of the Cabbage Patch narrative. Again, I'm not certain where this still originates from, but I'm guessing it's the continued work of Alice Guy, seeing as how the Gaumont Film Company is deemed responsible and founder Leon Gaumont's secretary, Alice Guy again, went on to become the head of production of the studio. The movie industry was always studio-run, even from its very conception. At the risk of somebody telling me the incubator exhibit involved roses rather than cabbages, and that the Cabbage Patch Baby idea was therefore Guy's invention, I will go ahead and ask you to tell me what this is. I spy children in a cabbage and two midwives. I can find very little information on the events surrounding this photo, but I'm told it was part of a Parisian parade in 1895, one year before Guy's film, and that the actual float was titled the Chariot of Birth. The oldest Cabbage patch baby depiction that I have yet to come across is reportedly dated to 1820, nearly to the time of the mud flood, nearly 70 years before the album, and it with the caption, that's where babies come from. You can see a woman there uh, lifting up a cabbage and seeing a baby sleeping under a cabbage. Perhaps I will find one even older still who really knows. The purported date certainly lines up with everything regarding the family narrative, though. Tell me, would this young woman be classified as a fallen woman? The entire narrative of the 
uh, commission Turkey women, maybe even more misdirection to try and explain the sheer amounts of orphan infants being found in the fields. Really, though, with every single hour that passes, I am repeatedly stubbing my toes upon more Cabbage Patch baby photos strewn about the internet. They just keep showing up. In fact, dozens upon dozens of them. Here's one more for the road. It may be the creepier of the lot, if only because it captures the Yasher scene in stunning clarity. Is the baby posed as we are expected to believe, or has the truth been staring right back at us all along? I mean, if you're looking at it there, it shows a baby. Maybe that's a composite image, a cutout. I don't really know. But it's a baby staring at you from the, from the garden. All right, so that concludes that night. And um, that didn't take as long as I was concerned it would. It's time for the Genesis Target with Michael tonight. But uh, let's go ahead and if anybody wants to jump in and tell me your thoughts, it's all yours. I hand it over to the jury, the defense rest. Well, I have some questions. <laughs> Incidentally, I'm adopted too, so this is an, uh, a subject that I find very fascinating. I don't get the incubator thing. Like, like, why was the incubator such a thing? And what was? I mean, we still have incubators today. I, I, I'm just my brain is just not connecting those things. Can you explain that a little bit? Well. I don't know if I can explain it, because obviously people were uh, really interested at staring at, you know, babies and incubators. Now, you know, if they could explain it this way. They're like, look, we have ex we have developed a new technology to save all these babies that have reportedly died. All right. Or would die otherwise. But the 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 question I brought up is where are all the parents? Um, I'm not saying they didn't have parents. I think it's really odd that the hospitals took these babies out of the hospital and handed it to this guy for a amusement park. And um, I think the elephant in the room is that all those parents were told that their babies died. I think that's what's really going on here, that we are seeing out in the open um, some of the, you know, what we would call like pedo talk today, but, you know, the... the uh, child, um, uh, I don't know, trading, um, underground, you know, kidnapping, whatever you want to call it. I mean, clearly that was what was going on. So they were trafficking children. Yes, thank you. You took the words right out of my mouth. But you know, a lot of people have made the connection. That's why I put it in there that there was a there was something going on. On between now, the the cabbage patch baby thing has been something that's been you know a wildfire of talk over the last month um, that has been connecting with the the incubator babies that there was something going on at the same time you know and and so yeah I don't know it what was the word I you put in there that the it was called the um um oh hatchery the child hatchery is that what they called it interesting uh, verbiage. It almost seems like they were like, you know, creating these babies in the incubators. Like if they had, you know, had already had um, 
eggs in that that were already like inseminated and that they were creating them like to me if they're telling the the parents that their babies had died like it just to me is there's so many of them like we're talking like a hundred thousand like that's like a small city of all these children and like you, you see pictures after pictures and most of the children are in the streets and you look at them on these machinery uh in working in industrial factories um you'd think that some people would be cluing in i don't know that i have no proof of that but it almost seems like this is what they were harvesting and that's maybe where the cabbage patch um babies come from and it kind of reminded me of like their resurgence of the cabbage patch doll that came out i think in the 80s you know that they had created all this this cabbage patch doll it was almost like kind of mocking in some ways of um you know in in reference to the, what had happened about these babies being in these cabbage patches it's definitely very peculiar and and i think you're right that i i think that people can't really take their lineage back really far because um i know when you do go back uh like people in in north america do hit a wall and um like i know my sister-in-law had done uh, stuff on on my husband's family and genealogy and they were all brought over on the the boats and the trains and that's where her lineage like literally stopped a dead stop because as soon as they arrived over on the boat that there's no trace of any of them after like before that so it's definitely kind of really weird and I think that maybe these displays of these incubators was that they were kind of creating them somehow. And this is why there were so many of them that they just kept producing them and producing them. I know it might be sound a little far-fetched, but I, I don't know. It just seems peculiar to me. Yeah. Anybody else have any thoughts? Hey, I do. Well, I just find it very interesting if Revelation 20 is true, that the dead come back to life, and if these were the babies who were passed through to Moloch, and then they're handed a Bible, um, well, first the two stones, one for milk and one for honey, and it's funny how today they teach you, you know, babies aren't to have honey the first year of life. I don't know what that is about, but if this was the short season and this is how he repopulated, because I'd never understood how everything was going to get repopulated, this would be the one way. And Yah provided them with the word, at least, because their parents just offered them to Moma. So that's all I have. Well, I was gone for the last 10 minutes or so, so I'm not sure if this was covered or not, but uh, one of the things that I, I thought was a possibility for many of the children in the orphan trains were people that actually lived through the millennial kingdom and weren't taken to paradise. Those people had to be silenced. And those were, if you read the history, we have these insane asylums all across the United States with just stupid, stupid reasons for people being put into them. Well, what a perfect place for these people to be put is insane asylums because you don't want them telling the story, or at least the enemy, you know, Satan and his minions do not want these people to be able to tell about the millennial kingdom. So therefore they're put into asylums and their children, which there would 
possibly be millions of them have been part of the orphan trains. I always know when John is speaking when I can hear the roosters in the background. Patrick, you said you wanted to be on muted you are unmuted oh thank you so i have a question is the implication with the woman out harvesting the babies is that actually something that possibly happened where these babies were out in nature and they went out and they gathered them and brought them in and sold them on a market okay that's the implication of the postcards right that they're out there collecting these babies and you know you guys question what's going on on an exoteric as well as an esoteric level. What I did was, is that I traced the passage down in Jasher when it said that the same thing happened to the children of Israel, or Yasharel, in the years leading up, to, really in the years of Moses's generation when he was also a baby at the same time. And the it would talk about how the Egyptians would go out to the fields to harvest, and they would be pulling up these babies, and they would be collecting them. Uh, and they were just everywhere, just babies everywhere. Uh, so it, it's a scene that whatever is happening in those French postcards seems to be depicted in the Book of Jasher. Uh, that was the connection I made there. Sarah E. is asking, what do you think will happen to us physically if we are here and alive and make it through the final battle to see the return of Yahusha or Yahuwah himself? That is a very good question. Um, so when it comes to what I think or all my thoughts, I hope you guys understand um, that I have tried my best to come to my conclusions based on what I can found, find in Scripture. That includes canonical books as well as non-canonical books, and then, of course, ancient texts as well. And uh, um, I, I made that decision as soon as I came into the mud flood. to be like, okay, a lot of people are talking about the mud flood in all these different ways. Uh, they're kind of coming up with all these different theories and ideas. I want to really just attack this from what I can find in Scripture. So to answer that question, uh, the, the, the one explanation I found on that comes from the Book of the Two Pearls. Uh, I should really cover this book sometime. It's a very, it's a, it's a LXX-based timeline book, um, meaning that it, it, you know, it comes from the perspective that uh, Yahusha arrived in the year 5,500, and that's Six, the year 6,000 brought in the Millennial Kingdom. And so it's said that when, uh, also the Book of the Two Pearls says straight out that New Jerusalem does not come down until after Satan's short season, all right? So it, it doesn't come at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. And it says that before uh, New Jerusalem comes down, during this war, it says everybody's going to die. Nobody here is making their life. Everybody dies. Uh, it says that the righteous will go into a holy sleep, which means we're not going to feel any pain. Uh, he's going to protect those he loves. But the idea is, is that the fire is coming down to cleanse the entire earth and everything is going to melt by fur. Everything's going to be destroyed. Nothing will remain. The earth will be renewed, restored, because it takes, you know, it, this is the eighth great day, right? And Yahuwah is not coming down. It's taken 7,000 years because of murder and sin, disease and um, uh, uncleanness for the earth to be restored. And Yahuwah will not come down until the earth is cleansed. And so we're all going to be burnt up and uh, we will have, or anyone, any of us who make it that far, if it's going to happen in our lifetime to begin with, um, will be resurrected on the other end. So that's what I have found on that.
Yeah, fire will come down from heaven. It's going to destroy everything, including us. We're all nobody's making it out of your life. All right. So if you guys wanted a rapture uh, explanation, I'm sorry, I'm not giving it. Thank you.